This is my voice. There are many others like it, but this one is mine. My voice is my weapon. It is my life. I must master it as I must master my life. Without me, my voice is useless. Without my voice, I am useless. I must use my voice with pride. Before God, I swear this creed. My voice and myself are the host of our show. We are the masters of our craft. We are the voice of the voiceless. So be it. Until there is no boredom, but entertainment. Amen. Hello and welcome back to Take 97, a film podcast with me, your host, David Ingram. On today's episode, I am doing another collaboration with, let's just say, he is a legend in himself. He is my long-term collaboration partner when it comes to podcasts. I've had many, many guests on the show, but this guy is my ultimate favourite. And especially because we share such a love for various films, including Quentin Tarantino and also the director of today's topic as well, uh, and that is Stanley Kubrick. So today's episode, before we get started, I'll just give you a briefing of what we're all about. So today we shall be discussing Full Metal Jacket, the 1987 Stanley Kubrick war epic movie but this episode is very special because very much like our pod series that we did for a clockwork orange me and my guest uh, should be taking this the two-part extreme so this is part one on take 97 of film podcast and part two will then be airing on films unchained podcast and that is where the punchline comes in my guest today is films unchained host ace mesa how you doing ace I'm doing great, David. It's great to be back on Take 97. It's been a while. I'm doing fantastic. How are you doing? Oh, absolutely brilliant. Honestly, I hype you up so much, but I cannot emphasize how much I love doing these conversations. They are just the best thing ever. Uh, and especially because we keep getting more and more Kubrick in there. So we will run out of Kubrick films eventually, guys. But for now, let's just enjoy the splendor that is Ace and David in the Stanley Kubrick universe. So Ace, do you want to tell us a little bit more about what we're doing today? Because you know that you are also the co-host of this episode, as I am going to be the co-host of your episode which will continue this discussion of full metal jacket on this pod series absolutely and just for the record i can't find a person who, who can talk about kubrick except you david i mean like you and i we just always like bring magic just like break down whatever it comes to kubrick or even other films but i'm glad you know to do this uh, with you as co-host and just doing this pod series together so uh yeah so we're gonna break down Stanley Kubrick's ninth film, Full Metal Jacket, uh, that was uh, released in 1987. So this was Kubrick's first uh, and only, actually, who am I kidding? Yeah, it's its first ever and last film about war, which is basically Vietnam War. And it's basically starring Arlie Ermey, Vincent uh, D'Onofrio, and Matthew Modine. This film is basically about dehumanization. And this was a very important theme in most of Kubrick's film. So that's what we're going to do today. And since part one is going to be about the birth of the killer, whereas part two will be later on Films Unchained, will be about war and beyond. So we're going to start with the summary. So uh, for the first part, which is birth of the killer, that's where we're going to focus on this episode. We're introduced with the song, Hello Vietnam, and see the army recruits shaving their heads to begin the training and to become U.S. Marines. Then we got introduced to the merciless, toughest drill instructor that David and I know, Sergeant Hartman, whose goal is to make the recruits into human-killing war machines. We got to meet some of the recruits with nicknames given by Hartman. We got to know Joker, played by Matthew Modine, and there's Cowboy, and the infamous, played by Vincent D'Onofrio, Gomer Pyle. We got to see the combat training, the marching, the running, the chanting, including the infamous this is my rifle, this is my gun, this is for fighting, this is for fun. And what we see is that Sergeant Hartman basically makes the soldiers treat their rifles as basically their women. And, and apparently that's basically, he's trying to say that for each soldier, this is the only woman you would ever be with to hold, to caress, and all that stuff. And while they're reciting the Rifleman's Creed. 
What we're trying to focus with is uh, Gomer Pyle, David, because he's basically the center of attention uh, in this part because he is the important person in part one because, you know, he is basically going to be dehumanized by all of this. So Gomer Pyle is basically smiling all the time, extremely moral, and he's naive and gentle, but he's basically like the back of the line. And Hartman does his harsh methods by brutally insults him, basically trying to verbally abuse him, psychologically abuse him to be specific, and continuously doing that. And he hates him. But who he has to trust is Joker. Now, Joker, he's like that. That's good, but he he trying to take Hartman's trust, and he did so. He was showing that he's able to be a leader. And Sergeant Hartman gave Joker his trust so he can basically train uh, Gomer Pyle. And, and we saw that, David. You know, like he was able to uh, teach him how to set up his rifle. And when it comes to like those like exercise and, and like, you know, holding onto the rope, he's, you know, helping him with that. And we see a lot of improvements, especially with the marching. Things were going well, David, except that one scene. I, do you remember the scene of the uh, jelly donut? Yes, I do indeed. Um, it's quite actually, you know, obviously you've beautifully summed a load of that up already so far. Um, the scene when it gets to the, the jelly donut, a jelly donut. Honestly, he it's such a it's a heartbreaking moment. I hate to it sounds weird to say that it's a heartbreaking moment in a Stanley Kubrick film, but I feel like you could easily watch the film very objectively and think, oh, you know, compared to the rest of them, he's not the fittest of the guys. He's, you know, clearly not destined to be in this line of, you know, the line of fire, the line of duty. But at the same time, but when it gets to the moment where you actually see him as you rightfully pointed out, Ace, uh, progress and, you know, Joker, Private Joker actually leads him into a better routine of things and he's actually picking things up and getting better. You actually want to root for Pyle the entire time once it gets to that point. But then obviously he slips up, as you say, the scene with the jelly donut. And from that point onwards, we get this sense of, you know, resentment and anguish and angst against Private Pyle because of his own greed and selfishness, you know, in the eyes of the other soldiers, the other trainees at the Marine Corps. I just think that it's a very, it's a, it sums up the innocence of what Pyle was, because Pyle is a very innocent character. We're introduced to him, <clears throat> and he's very much this character that is presented as like the fool then, shall we say, even though we've got a, a Texan in the mix uh, <laughs> who, you know, traditionally and stereotypically in older films a texan would sound very stupid but in this case we've got private pile who is the sort of the low intelligence of the rank and he is very much this character that is you know you're meant to follow along with joker uh, and somewhat cowboy as well private cowboy uh, you're meant to follow them along and see their development and with private pile he doesn't seem to progress until that point that joker takes him under his under his wing and I think it's a very lovely moment, really, a very nuanced performance overall by, um, you know, the actors involved. So Matthew Modine, obviously, as you mentioned already, and I'm very sorry, I'm going to pronounce his name wrong, but um, Vincent Dionafario. I want to say that's how you say his name. I probably more confidence if I said it quicker. Uh, but them to really do a brilliant performance, you know, so Leonard or Goma Pyle. And also, you know, Joker, they have a great bond. And I think that's what anchors us to the beginning. And I'll hand back over to you because I feel like this film, Ace, is very much like A Clockwork Orange, like we've already done already. It's a film of two halves. Some Kubrick films are one solid linear narrative. And this is two. But this is very much the first part. And you get to see the angst and you know the pain and torture of the human mind and the dehumanization as you say but yeah like you said the jelly donut is really the moment where pile is berated he's made to eat it and everybody else has to do push-ups and punishment exercises for him so it's kind of he does one bad thing it looks bad on the others as well you actually like uh you really brought up an interesting point about like how the movie having basically two parts similar to a clockwork orange and the two parts is uh specifically for joker because joker is the narrator and basically considered the main protagonist in the film but for pile 
is basically the only part, like the only part, like throughout the film, like this part is basically the biggest thing for Pyle. And you mentioned about uh, being hit by socks, like like by his, uh, I don't know, you call it, like the, by the recruits. And this is actually called a blanket party, which is you know a form of hazing and corporal punishments within the recruits. And you saw that Joker, him being disappointed and heartbroken, as you mentioned, was the last one to hit Pyle, but multiple times hurting him. Yeah. What we saw was Private Cowboy saying, "Remember." This was all just a bad dream, fat boy. This was the turning point for Private Pyle as if he was baptized to madness. Mm. He got more quiet. He even named his rifle. And also he got more focused in his combat skills to the point Hartman got so impressed when he was shooting at the targets at the fire range. Sergeant Hartman was like, outstanding Private Pyle. I think we finally found something that you do well. And Gomer Pyle goes, sir, yes, sir. So he was very impressed, uh, the change. But Joker was the one who was worried because he was sensing some sort of a mental breakdown. Now, we see that the recruits are graduating and going to be sent to Vietnam, but not quite as planned. The last scene of part one was the final day for the recruits before being sent out to the battlefield. Joker, being the caretaker, discovers Pyle in the bathroom sitting on the toilet with a 7.62 millimeters full metal jacket. Ha, he said it. Joker got so worried because he knows that Private Pyle is suffering a mental breakdown because he's no longer smiling the like the innocent Pyle that we first saw. And he reminded him that if you're going to do something horrendous, we're going to be in a world of shit. Now, being in the bathroom... That's the thing that it's that's, that's that's an interesting thing about Kubrick is that they're trying to show that they are in a world of shit while being in the bathroom as in a place that has shit. This is where Pyle really went berserk. He sets up his rifle, reciting the rifle's creed out loud. Everyone woke up, including Hartman, who tried to stop Pyle attempting to intervene. But of course, being Sergeant Hartman continually continuously insulting him having enough with him and his insults private pile with a lot of shot for us shot and killed hartman before shooting himself and committing suicide and what we realized that you know joker witnessed the horror of the military camp and the dehumanization occurred right in front of him before being sent to vietnam and that's the in that's the sad part before being sent to the war he witnessed the war between humanity and violence. It's going to take more than a toothbrush to clean the bloody mess in the bathroom. And David, that summarizes part one of Full Metal Jacket, The it Birth does. of a Killer. It does indeed. And you've done such a good job on that, honestly. I mean, just to really sort of take a moment just to appreciate this, because the reason, guys, why we are doing this two-part pod series, once again for another Stanley Kubrick film, is because... You know, there's so much to look at in both elements. Now, Full Metal Jacket, there might actually seem a little bit less to break down in some respects, because really it's very basic two halves. There is the training and the dehumanization and then the war and beyond in some respects, which is what we will get to later. But the main point of this episode is just to look really closely at some of the things that Kubrick did in that and what we love about him, you know, the things that we notice. So obviously, we've covered a little bit already. But Ace, I just want to say, you mentioned from the outset, that this is a story about dehumanization and the taking of one's personality away. The opening literally does that straight from the offset, uh, where we open up with, so you see the Warner Brothers logo, and we have a bit of a, a nice happy song in the background, really, can, to be honest, which is a bit of a, you know, a contradiction in what we're actually going to be seeing as the film progresses it's not a happy film um but so the opening uh, as we see they are dehumanized so their personalities are taken away from the beginning so and this is in the form of their hair uh, it's a classic thing that most people who have seen war movies or understand the nature of being in uh, armed forces or any kind of group like that the raf the marines anything like that generally especially in the olden days they would shave your head so it would like it would not distract and you know it doesn't 
get in the way of your face and such because it's obviously back in the like in the 80s especially as well hair was a big thing um so you know shaving of a man's head it really took away the individuality then of these young lads who and or men soon to be where they would become these you know parts of a machine which are all one and the same very much like the reference to the this is my rifle you know all rifles are the same but this is mine and which is kind of a bit of a contradiction really when you think about it because you know they're all meant to be working in sync they're all meant to be doing the same things but then at the end of the day they are individuals and they take on the challenges that are thrown at them individually Uh, and we see that in the sense of how well each of them copes with the training regime thrown at them by (laughs) the brilliantly bombastic and really harsh and rude and just mean over the top performance that we get by Lee Emery who plays you know Gunnery Sergeant Hartman as you've mentioned already uh, in this intense scenario that's something I'd like to sort of mention you know so we dehumanize the uh, the lads from the beginning where their heads are shaved uh, and the training obviously by Sergeant Hartman is very obviously not the nicest. Uh, and I'd like to sort of delve deeper and talk with you about Sergeant Hartman himself and him as a character and the fact that actually he was drawing his performance on real life situations that he was familiar with as a real life drill sergeant in the real world outside of the movie. He actually was pretty authentic considering and i feel like with kubrick authenticity even in the fictional sense is paramount for him uh what would you say about that so as you mentioned you know like first of all like you know cheers to the beautiful discussion that you brought up david regarding arlie ermy's role so you mentioned authenticity and you're right you know he he did serve the army like uh you know outside of uh the world of filmmaking in fact he was in real life, a U.S. Marine drill instructor, and he had a nickname, Gunny. That was his nickname from 1961 to 1972. When you brought up authenticity, Stanley Kubrick gave him a lot of freedom for his role to improvise. But And David, you you know how Kubrick is a perfectionist. He doesn't really give uh, actors uh, freedom when it comes to improvisation. But like for Arlie Ermey, because he was authentic, he gave him, you know, the flexibility for his role. I, I, I just want to ask you, like, for a person like Arlie Ermey having creative freedom, can you imagine, like, other actors who had to deal with Kubrick of not gaining creative freedom whatsoever? No, absolutely. Um, I think, can you, like, the popular one, I, I, don't, I try not to bring her up all the time because she's the first one that I think of all the time whenever we think of Kubrick and the relationship uh, between... Uh, performer so the talent in the film and the director uh, but you know Shelley Duvall is the number one example that I can bring up in this scenario um, oh, yeah. where she's literally just a mess the entire time I just I think she's you know you wouldn't have seen her being able to improvise mainly because she was so so terrified of the man um, <laughs> because of the way she do it. she was directed by him um, you know the same with Alex DeLarge, you know, Malcolm McDowell, he didn't have much free. The only freedom he had was the song that he was able to use at the end of not, it was Singing in the Rain, because that's the only song he knew. That's the only sort of freedom that he had when he did his little pieces. But other than that, I just genuinely think it's a rare moment to see in these elements of a Kubrick filmmaking that someone was able to improvise in a way I think though it does sort of he loosens up a little bit as we get forward because if you think about Eyes Wide Shut although everything was scripted and things were enhanced with the likes of Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise being in the actual relationship and being actually married at the time um, that allowed for a bit more of an open performance then even though he clearly directed them in a specific way but I think I, I couldn't have imagined this is the one I feel like also <laughs> I feel like uh, with <laughs> the sergeant, he he took no crap whatsoever. Uh, I feel like with Kubrick, even though he was an intimidating guy I, or potentially in some respects, some reports say 
I feel like Kubrick was intimidated by Lee, <laughs> just to say, because I think that I wouldn't be shocked. I wouldn't be shocked because can you imagine, like, you know, like Stanley Kubrick walks onto the set and he goes, Yeah, uh, no, you'd be afraid of me. I'm the director. I've got I've got directorial vision, creative control. You know, you will do what I say. And then Lee walks on set and he just goes, are you talking to me, Stanley? No, you are a disgrace. I will do what I want to do. I, I will not do what I'm told because I will do what I want to do. And at the end of the day, you don't got no shit to talk to me. <laughs> oh, I, I, I could picture it. I think uh, Kubrick couldn't, can't even say a word to Ermi because of his authenticity. <laughs> yeah, and no, I literally, I bet he was like, like I just did there. Nice little impersonation there. I literally. Well done with <laughs> thank, the improvisation. Th- thank you. I see, I'm allowed to see Kubrick allowed him to improvise, which allows me to improvise. It's, you know, Kubrick affects our minds. He's getting in there. He's, he's dead, oh, but yeah. he's getting into our minds. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he into that. But all of the examples you mentioned about, you know, a clockwork orange and eyes wide shut, like that basically shows like uh, what Kubrick is able to do and who can he give freedom to when it comes to authenticity. And Lee Ermey is probably, you know, the the only example that I know, like, like, of course, in this film, he's the only authentic person when it comes to like improvisation and stuff. But what's shocking is that he wasn't nominated for his role as Sergeant Hartman for Best Supporting Actor. Because the only yeah. thing Full Metal Jacket was being nominated was like the best adapted screenplay yeah. uh, for Stanley Kubrick, which is, I think it's messed up. I think, you know, like, you know, best supporting actors should be like the one that makes sense when it comes to Arlie Ermey, who he was fantastic mm. for his role. I don't know what's going on with 1987 because that was also the same year of our, in, you know, our unique film that we like, and that is Angel Heart. Oh, but yes. I don't know. But I don't know where was the '87 uh, crew going to. But that's a that's a later discussion. It is indeed. But, but what I liked about Hardman, there is this quote. I really loved it. I don't know why. He's like, "You may not like me, but the more you hate me, the more you will learn." The minute he said that, I don't know why. I I I I got hooked into uh, Sergeant Hart because, like, if you think about it, David, we we can hate anyone. But we can't really forget what they would say or what they would do. And we tend to learn from from them, basically. Now, of course, in a good way, at least we're going to learn something from the people that we hate. Uh, But I just want to ask you, when when he said that quote, what were your initial thoughts? Honestly, there's so many things that come to my mind when I think of it, when he said, you know, if you're afraid of me, you'll learn from me. You know, that kind of the tough love side of things, then, shall we say. Tough love at the end of the day, I think it really sort of, because I think what Stanley Kubrick was trying to do when he made this film was basically translate this essence of fear. And also, you know, because Kubrick at the end of the day was anti-war, really, because he's already done it like twice before in a way, well, once properly with Paths of Glory back in the 19, um, 1950s. I think it's almost exactly, I think it's is it 56, 57. So it's pretty much almost an entire like three decades on from that first anti-war film that we get this new piece. And obviously we've got the likes of Dr. Strangelove as well, which was more to do with atomic war and stuff like that. But I just genuinely think that he he was presenting this really as harsh cold stone facts for you as well as a little bit of creative licensing here and there but he was really trying to get the message home that you know this is what it's like it's relentless it's horrible but that's the way they see the world that's the way these drill sergeants act and the fact that you had that authenticity in the performance of uh, in the drill sergeant it was just amazing to actually watch really it's it's horrible to watch for a first time viewer Um, but once you watch it a few more times you sort of really understand what's trying to be said with this film and i just think at the end of the day you know it's the toughest one is the one that sticks it out to the end but ultimately you will lose something by the end of this you will lose who you were once before Uh, and that brings me back you know the opening sequence they lose their hair they're all shouted at by the (laughs) drill sergeant right at the beginning all throughout the entire first segment this first half which we have dedicated an episode to is completely all about the loss of innocence at the end of the day because you know as i was mentioning earlier private pile he is an innocent he finds things funny he can't help but laugh at how 
upright and stupid in some respects the drill sergeant sounds to him but because he means business and he really does pile obviously learns the error of his ways and eventually if it wasn't for the time that the drill sergeant hit him in the in the abdomen the blue nightmare sequence as i like to call it or um the blanket party as it's called where he's restrained and it's, it's all blue um i actually just want to say you know that's a brilliantly shot scene and we'll get onto that in just a minute like in terms of the cinematography of kubrick later on in a minute for this part of the film but you know there's that one that punishment scene it's just very harsh and horrible and it shows the lessening and lessening of private pile and as you mentioned earlier with private joker he learns the hard way of what can happen to someone and it's kind of he's kind of shocked into fear of like he doesn't want to be like private pile but at the same time he's still you know progressing in that respect and he's become this war loving young man and we learn more about that in the next part of the film which we'll get onto with ace and films unchained that's all i really have to say about that it's just a real harsh story it's the decline of private pile and then the decline of joker because joker seems quite level-headed don't you think what what would you say joker seems quite level-headed throughout the entire opening of the film but then it's only really until the second part that he starts to you know descend into that equal sense of madness uh that's not quite the same as pile but it's you know a different kind it's a bit of a more of a dichotomy between you know the peace the war and the killer that has been born through this regime you mentioned about the dehumanization uh, and then, you know, with Private Pile and Joker. And you're right. You know, we're going to focus on like how, you know, different people will eventually like lose their innocence and eventually, you know, like lose a sense of humanity. And of course, we're going to see like Joker uh, going through that uh, journey because as you know, after all, Joker is the main narrator of the film documenting everything he experienced about the war the good, the bad, and the ugly. And he takes on a journey to observe dehumanization before getting onto the battlefield and during the battlefield. And we saw that with Gomer Pyle, but Pyle didn't even get out of going to the war. And, and that's the interesting part, David, is that he hasn't even been sent to the battlefield, yet he suffered mental breakdown like sooner. And Joker witnessing the horror, eventually he's going to go that route if there's no, if there's nothing to sustain, because the main mission of Sergeant Hartman was to create war machines. And he did, he succeeded, but he failed to sustain one of them. And that is private pile because he did not consider mental breakdown and mental breakdown is a very big part in full metal jacket, because when you compare and contrast like different soldiers, eventually like the different Marines, you're going to see how everyone is coping with the war. Pyle hasn't even been sent to the war, yet he is suffering mental breakdown. And eventually, and later in the film, you're going to see Joker having some sort of like a different outlook. And then uh, we're going to get to introduced to Animal Mother in part two, but we're going to save that for later. We are indeed, yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, looking uh, forward to it. But yeah, no, um, honestly, yeah, that's absolutely right. All that stuff you're saying there, Ace, is just, yeah, it's very true. I, I, there's a couple of points. I feel like we, we've stated our point. We've made our point about like what the first part's about. It's all about dehumanization. I've mentioned, you know, it starts right from the opening, from the shaving heads up through to the intense methods by Sergeant Hartman in this remote South Carolina island base where they're based to do the training. And we see how grueling the training is. Um, I'd like to sort of now we'll get to a part where we're just going to pick apart a few individual bits and we might start talking about like the nitty gritty about like the cinematic style of things. And we mentioned color just then I'll bring one of that back in a minute. Uh, but first of all, we'll go back to your favorite thing. You like to mention this one. I mean, I do too, but this is something that you have particularly highlighted and it's the rifles and how they are treated like women would you like to expand on that part because before you get started though i'd like to just point out you know it's an interesting thing that these men are not only being starved of any sense of normality and humanity the the closest thing that they can feel like i know that they could escape like a relationship then uh with a woman um which clearly they learn to not really care about really much in the respect of women, especially in part two, which we'll get to. The only woman they truly respect 
It's not even a woman. It's a gun with a woman's name. Uh, I'd like you to just expand on your thoughts on the treating their rifles as if they were women uh, and such, and that component to the themes relating to this film and how really it shows how sad and lonely these men have become because they only have each each other. They're a brotherhood at the end of the day. That's actually mentioned at one point, they're a brotherhood. You carry on and tell us a little bit more about your thoughts on the rifles. All right, all right, then. This is going to be a very interesting uh, part, David. And I'm very glad that you mentioned. Uh, to me, I noticed it for a very different outlook. So, David, I watch pro wrestling. I, I love pro, pro wrestling so much, especially the British wrestling. One of the uh, promotions I was uh, watching uh, like earlier uh, throughout high school, it was uh, called Jakar, and there was a wrestler named Eddie Kingston, and he had a world championship uh, that he's been holding on to for a year, then he lost it. And throughout his uh, reign as a world champion, he called his championship her, and then he got interviews. Like Some people tell me, well, why do I call my championship belt her? And he, and he said this, he's like, you see, I, I never had a sense of peace, and I never made love until I had her, until I hold her, because when I hold her, it gives me peace, it gives me security, it gives me purpose. And that's what trying to symbolize, you know, the rifles uh, for the soldiers, because because all everyone there are all men. They, they, they There's no, not a single woman in, in the training, in the boot camp. I like to call it the boot camp. So they need to have something to hold on to, to give them security, to give them support. And the only thing that can give them support and protection are the rifles because they can, you know, they sleep with it. They hold on to it at all times. And, and I don't know, like, where to say, but like, I think I remember the sentence like, never, never leave your rifle. If you could put it as like, never leave your woman. It's kind of that thing. Like you remember when Gomer Pyle, when he was suffering mental breakdown, he mem- you remember how he sets up his rifle slowly. It's yeah. as if like he's trying to, you know, like trying to like talk to a woman, or it's like trying to like make love to it. Mm, and yeah, he even yeah, yeah. named his rifle. And when you see that, it's like holding on to the rifle. It's like holding on to your love. So Sergeant Harvin was like, "You leave it, you're done." And, and it's a very big thing when it comes to like, you know, sex and pornography, because that's a very big part in Full Metal Jackets, mm, yes. especially in later in part two. And when they see women, how would they, you know, look at it as like, because in part two, it's not like a sport, but like in part two, most of the women that they see uh, are either in magazines or hookers. But that's later yeah, in, to be discussed. But no. yeah, so having the rifle, uh, if, if like, if, David, if, if we are both soldiers, and the only thing that we see, you know, if there's no women, only thing we see are rifles that like, gives us protection, gives us support. Then, yeah, we see them as like, you know, it's like having, you know, like having, you know, like love. And mm-hmm. that's why um, the infamous uh, Sergeant Harbin says, I, I, you know, this I, I don't really say, but like this is him. Like, so he has this, you know, the, you know filthy language, like, because this is the only pussy you would ever have in your life. And even to the extent where they... They do their chants like they do throughout the entire training. It's like, I don't know what I've been told, that kind of thing. But where they walk around in their little bed, bedroom sort of base area, uh, holding their rifles and pulling their attributes, shall we say, their lower never regions then, uh, every t- in rhyme with the chant. There's the only two things they have, really. They have the two symbols, really, of strength power protection and masculinity at the end of the day the masculinity coming through in their never regions and then their protection and strength and power is presented through this you know rigid backbone that is protecting them so that is the rifle Um, and in a way it's kind of very 1950s because you know you think about the traditional old-fashioned way of like the husband comes home to his wife at home, who is basically the backbone of the household and has kept everything going to ultimately for him just to come back and just do nothing really except for his work during the day. And in a way, that's very much a parallel in Full Metal Jacket. You know, the men go out to war. In this case, though, it's a bit different because it's like they're saying they're taking the woman with them. And it's also a little bit like back in... Uh, say, for instance, reference to like soldiers in World War One, World War Two, where they used to have like 
lockets or like little pieces like a little photo of like their sweethearts or their wives or girlfriends or something um with them as like a a sense of protection really so you know women are their protection even though they're not there but they don't need the physical touch of a woman it's more that rigid backbone which a rifle is very much a symbol of you know upward staunchness that's going to hold you together kind of thing um and in a way it's very much if we want to read more into it ace i don't know what your thing feelings about this are but you know we talk about like daddy and mummy issues and stuff like that in <laughs> clockwork orange you know parental figures are an issue for alex delage i feel like it's that sense of they've got their mothers watching over them kind of thing their mothers are always watching over them and that's the gun the gun is the mother and I suppose you can read into that what you will. But what would you say about that theory there that I just presented you with? Just a little bit off the cuff, though. There's a lot of thoughts in my head, David, because uh, we're going to connect to everything that we just talked about. Because you brought out some things that I just realized that Kubrick did not add. That was usually like the common thing to do in the battlefield. You mentioned about like, you know, uh, soldiers like, you know, having pictures of like, you know, their wives or even like having like their baby child, like in like the small like uh, medallions or, or even lockets to give them like, yeah or peace and what you notice is that none of the soldiers have that no one meant i don't think anyone mentioned about like going back to their you know their their wives or even like to their child because like they're they're all of them were like are like children in a way they're not like men the typical men that we see like whether you compare to sergeant hartman yeah exactly and and when you mention like uh shaving their heads as like a new identity you know if, if you put it this way because Going back to uh, Sergeant Harbin, uh, like before the rifle screen, when he said this is the only th uh, thing you people are going to get. And then he also said, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I'm going to have to do this. Your days of finger banging old Mary Jane rotten crotch through her pink, pretty pink panties are over. You're married to this piece, this weapon of iron and wood, and you will be faithful. Now, if you put that with the shaving their heads and give them a new identity, Whatever they had in the past, whether having a woman in their having women in their lives are gone. And with the new identity and with the new names that they have now, like you know, with Joker, or Cowboy, or Pile, they're now married to the rifles because they're no longer humans. They're trying to be human killing machines. And it's all connected now because if you remember the the rifles creed, one of the pieces is like, uh, without me, my rifle is useless. Without my rifle, I am useless. It's it, it's it's just all connected now. And Kubrick wanted to remove that typical like holding holding on to like you know a uh, hope of like going home back to their wives or, or children because he's trying to take that hope out of the story and just focus on the filthy side of humanity. That's yeah. what I think of it. No, exactly. And also something else I just thought of as well is the fact that this is not the first time Kubrick has made a film where characters or a set of characters or, you know, or a single character has gone in somewhere and has a, had a complete total overhaul of their personality. You know, we talked about the soldiers in Full Metal Jacket. They have completely changed. You know, they've become different people. They may retain some of their personality potentially as they get into part two, so the second half of the film. But at the end of the day, they are different people. The Shining, seven years prior to this, the Torrances go to the hotel. They go as one type of person, and Shelley leaves as a, a absolute wreck. Jack leaves. Well, he does leave. He's dead, uh, but he goes mad. Uh, and then obviously Danny, he will never be the same again. Uh, and especially if you guys want to follow Dr. Sleep as well, you can see their fallout from that. But then you've also got the likes of going through the Starfield stargazing sequence, stargaze sequence of 2001 Space Odyssey. Dave Bowman goes in as one person and he comes out literally as a completely different being you know it's not the first time that kubrick's talked about reinvention of the persona and the complete overhaul of what one once was and then has become something completely different and again you know tom cruise eyes wide shut he goes in as this one one guy you know his husband and he comes out as this weird creepy obsessed sort of strange deranged man who's you know, got rattled into a load of like cultish stuff. So at the end of the day, it's essential for Kubrick to show this flip of identities. And in the first one, it is the death of Pyle 
that shows that. Uh, and I feel visually it's something we can talk about more. I mean, do you have any other points before we move on to the visuals of Stanley Kubrick in this first part of Full Metal Jacket? Or is there anything else you want to pick up on before we continue? No, not really, because you really summed it up like, you know, very well when it comes to for, uh, Kubrick focusing when it comes to his films, like no one will ever go back as the way they were. Yeah, At the no. end of the film, they'll be different from the way they were in the beginning. So you did, you know, I, I love the fact that you mentioned that, David. So much appreciated yeah. with the, with this uh, conversation. Thank you. Uh, yeah, nothing will ever truly be the same again. And some people might say that for listening to us talk on these podcasts, but but be that a good thing or a bad thing, we will we will see. <laughs> and I do that little mini evil laugh, kind of fake evil laugh, because um, I want to get to the visuals. And visuals are key to any Kubrick film. I want to bring up the obvious one first, and that's the one-point perspective, the use of one-point perspective, or specifically the Steadicam in this film, because we get the Steadicam, which was used for the first time by Kubrick in The Shining to great lengths, following Danny Torrance around the, the Overlook Hotel, and all those lovely shots that we are so used to as cinema film buffs now. But with this one, I feel like it's the whole being able to track Sergeant Hartman, as he walks through past all of the, you know, the trainees, I just, I think it really anchors you. And I don't think anyone's quite got the whole thing right. I think some films have done it since, but I feel like you really are able to get into the character's mind without having to do like point of view shots. So, you know, like, I feel like the whole, the symmetry of the beds and everything and the way the Sergeant is in the middle of the room, you know, that, key one point perspective where you're looking inwards and that's the whole theme of any of Kubrick's films you're looking inward to the human condition and this one because it's about war and anti-war and stuff you're looking into it so that's why I really think the one point perspective is being used for you know you're meant to be looking inwards and it's taking you inwards a bit like the one point perspective in like a piece of art or something um, but that's something I just want to mention off the top of my head like um but the other thing i'd like to mention which i want to actually discuss properly is the uh, aforementioned the blanket party sequence which i mentioned the color blue very like a blue movie almost uh like a, a very nightmare fueled uh, very creepy very crazed and deranged and all these people because they've been just after the aforementioned jelly donut scene they get really annoyed with private pile for basically making their lives worse because he can't do the training correctly. Uh, I just like to talk about the effect that that color blue has on that scene and how it really creates that nightmare fuel. A bit like the way red is used in Stanley Kubrick's um, The Shining. You know, that's a nightmare fuel, but blue is very much a subdued version of a nightmare. It's like it's real, but it's still a nightmare. Whereas the red is very much a vision shall we say in the shining what would you say so you mentioned the color blue i think i uh, i talked about this uh you know when, when i broke down in the terminator judgment day of course not not the other ones uh, yeah. uh was basically about the color blue i'm not gonna get into the other color but the color blue one of the things that uh, it symbolizes basically you know being cold uh you know it's like you know losing sense of humanity and it's, it's just dark and that's a thing we we usually see the color blue when it's like dark and being cold so when you mix these things with the color blue that's trying to give the atmosphere uh, whenever uh it comes to basically private pile and these are shown like during the scenes that either he he is gonna lead to having a mental breakdown or already has a mental breakdown that's what i uh understood from that color and you mentioned the blanket party um apparently it's a form of uh hazing and a corporal punishment being used in the U.S. Marines. And this could actually lead to, uh, you know, PTSD because there was an article in 2015, a U.S. Army veteran uh, was diagnosed with post-traumatic uh, stress, stress disorder because of the blanket party he suffered in the 1970s. So having the color blue being cold and, and, and dark and, and, and trying to connect with private pile in the blanket party just shows the the uh the symbolic message that kubrick wanted to show you know i just want to highlight before we go on to more visuals don't you think the joker joker is just although pile is an important part of the film joker really is the heart of 
the film, um, especially moving forward into the second half. Um, and he is our narrator. And it's a very interesting use of narration, I feel, because he doesn't actually like he comes in at key moments in the film. But you almost forget that there's a narrator until he pops up every now and again. Don't you think like it's a bit strange how we don't have a constant narrator reminding us of things or we don't just have it at the beginning and then at the end of the film we have it at the beginning the end and then occasionally in the middle um but yeah it's an interesting perspective i think that kubrick decided to play with i think it all goes down to with the idea of less is more yeah you know exactly so you mentioned like he's only like narrating the the important or the highlighted parts and that's what we want because the, the, we don't need to hear him narrating all t- uh, all the time just the the parts where like it shows a sense of importance, like uh, in you know, like uh, throughout the film. So mm. I think I think I, I like that idea that Kubrick did. Just like the less is more. Yeah, and in terms of less is more, I think he did that for the first part. Like the first part of the film, visually, it's very blank. It's very easy, and you know, there's not much around. It's just they're in costumes, the characters, and obviously they're who they are. But they're not wearing like really flamboyant outfits, or you know any of the war stuff until we get to the second part of the film and there's no explosions or anything like there's gunshots and stuff because they're practicing with their guns and their rifles and stuff but you know the setting of the quarters the bedroom quarters and also the infamous bathroom they're not really meant to be these grand sets they're just meant to be bare basic straight down to the bone sets that aren't really jazzy then should we say compared to the likes of like the overlook hotel which was a very elaborate lavish production piece whereas the opening of the film metal jacket it looks like it, it like the thing i could say for the whole film is very documentary like i love the documentary feel especially we'll get more to that in part two but you feel like because of the way the camera follows um sergeant hartman you feel like it's very documentary like in the sense that you know you're following a day in the life of the marines and then when something you know, dramatic happens when there's a zoom or when, for instance, the end scene occurs uh, of part one where Private Pyle kills himself and Sergeant Hartman. Then you start to realize, and, you know, there's that lovely use of slow motion. I love the slow motion. Um, That's where you realize that, yeah, this is a film, not a documentary. Um, But it kind of blends the, it blurs the lines between documentary and fiction film, really, and also just anti-war statement as well. But moving on to, so the last point I want to bring up really with you before we do some last concluding thoughts and seal off this episode before moving on to your podcast. Um, I'd like to sort of bring up the final scene. Let's break down the final scene, the private pile. We've mentioned it already before. He kills the sergeant. He kills himself. Um, but there's so many similarities. Again, the Kubrick similarities. It's like Kubrick's greatest hits here, you know, Jack Torrance's evil glare in The Shining, you know, it's there in Private Pile as he is about to die. That's the moment he turns and that's the moment that there's a shift. And I always like to say that, you know, everything in a Kubrick movie happens in the bathroom. You know, Delbert Grady, (laughs) you know, and the developments of Jack's switch from good to bad in a way or, you know, evil balancing in the midst of spiritualness or whatever it is that's going on the overlook and you know the insanity and the descent of private piles mind into nothingness it happens in the bathroom eyes wide shut the beginning of the film starts with the couple in their own bathroom in their apartment you know everything happens when they're in the toilet (laughs) essentially and i I just what were your thoughts what uh, give me your you know your analysis of that part of the film because it is a crucial part of the film and it really sets joker up for being who he needs to be in the the rest of the film he needs to be a tough-nosed somebody to get through to what he wants to be even though he doesn't end up fighting as such until the end of the film he's just a journalist as we'll learn he learns from the mistakes of pile but ultimately pays the price in terms of losing a friend and um his mentee which he grew proud of I don't know where where I start from there because you mentioned about like um, the the shining with when it comes to the bathroom and the deadly stare that uh, is one of Kubrick's trademarks. But another uh, movie is also A Clockwork Orange with the deadly stare of uh, Malcolm McDowell as Alex yeah, DeLarge. Exactly. But also, um, if you remember the scene of uh, when when Alex was singing, you know, singing in the rain at at the old man's house, 
that's when also things have changed for him. He was before the bathroom, he's, you know, trying to be saved and trying to be taken care of. And then, you know, when he, once he's in the bathroom, things have changed for the worse. And I think one of the th big things about Kubrick is that he's trying to have this, uh, you know, like trademark for himself that whenever someone is in the bathroom or something that leads to the bathroom, things will change from better to the, uh, not to worse, to the worst. This happened in Eyes Wide Shut. You saw that happen in the end. We saw that in Clockwork Orange when it comes to Alex. You know, The Shining, you know, Jack Torrance have, uh, went to the bathroom twice, might I add. So it got like twice, uh, you know, uh, worse for him. And now with Private Pile is basically, you know, the end for him because we saw him in the beginning all smiling. And now at the end, he's like demonically smiling. And that's what Kubrick wanted to trying to add in when it comes to the bathroom. It's like having, a, like, I don't know how to say like a... Uh, a satanic or like, uh, oh no, a dehumanizing moments for Gomer Pyle. Uh, you mentioned about like, you know, Joker, you know, he, he lost his, uh, you know, his good friend, I guess to say, or, or his mentee after Hartman uh, gave him his trust. But I think Hartman gave him too much trust because if Joker was as good as he thought he was, he would have stopped the mess that happened. You know, he would have stopped pile to shoot himself and shooting Hartman yeah and and him being a journalist uh, if you remember like when uh, he was uh, being selected as a journalist being you know graduating the uh, boot camp Hartman was like what the hell why journalist and I think uh, he had so much expectations for Joker and also Joker had expectations for himself but he felt ever since you know pile shot himself you know he could have stopped all of this but he didn't and in part two, that's why we see kind of like a different kind of character for Joker because yeah. seeing that horrendous moment for him kind of like changed him, yeah. you know, not for the worst, but I think changed him for being stronger. I feel like he's just ultimately, and we'll get onto this in part two, but can we just say here now, I feel like Joker, the, the film is a story, or at least the second part is all about the redemption of Joker but he doesn't quite succeed as we will learn. Um, but it feels like he's trying to make amends for the, you know, what he didn't do for private pile in the training camp. Uh, and he tries to do it for obviously the motivations of the U S and everything in the Vietnam war and his everything for being involved. But I just think that, you know, he's trying to redeem himself and then it, things just keep getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And that's the sort of message I think of, Full Metal Jacket is that things in moments in war and, you know, conflict as such will always end bad for someone. Uh, and generally, even if some people get off lightly, it will get worse in the end. Uh, and that's the general message I think Kubrick's trying to point out with this. I mean, what would you say? His, you know, I, I think the anti-war sentiment is very clear in the way that everyone's portrayed as being so harsh and horrible and as if, you know, taking of human lives is normal, it's fine, and uh, being deranged is acceptable. But, you know, what would you say? I think you you mentioned it, uh, you know, like when it comes to, like, the general uh, focus of the film, you know, very well. Regarding Joker, I don't say it's more of, you know, a redemption. I, I guess you could say, like, redemption, you know, trying to correct the mistake of Pyle, but I think for Joker in this film is trying to gain the strength that he's supposed to have, you know, like without like, you know, sympathy or emotions, he has to gain the strength of a machine. And I think that's uh, what Kubrick wanted to show us about like how Joker can have that throughout the film. Hmm. No, exactly. No, I couldn't agree more to be fair. Um, but yeah, that's really all I have to say really on part one on Take 97, a film podcast, the Full Metal Jacket, Birth of a Killer. I think Kubrick really has created at least, you know, it's like we're talking about two films here. And that's what lots of people say about this film, that it's it's two films. We get, you know, an army training for mini short film, as it were, for the first hour, as it were. And then we get this epic, hard look at the Vietnam War through this specific perspective. Uh, and we'll get more onto that in the next episode, which will not be on Take 97, but it will be on Films Unchained podcast where movie analysis, breakdowns and film talks take place. 
Sorry to nick all your right, uh... <laughs> all right. I love this. <laughs> I, I just had to do your I, I did it on the yeah, you know, well, I say I did it. Other me did it on the multiverse episode. So you know, I feel like I deserve to to take a little bit of films and chain magic just to add to the Tate 97 flair, as it were. You know, so but why not? I mean, you it's a pleasure having you on all the time, Ace. Honestly, and uh, you know, thank you so much for coming on just you know to end pleasantries now before we conclude really thank you is there anything you want to say to the listeners before we uh, conclude this episode any final thoughts you want to share with us uh, before we conclude uh, this segment and move on to films unchained uh well first things first i want to say uh, much appreciated david uh, for being uh, in take 97 a film podcast it's always a pleasure to talk to you uh not just about kubrick films but everything revolving around cinema um, the second thing I just want to give, you know, like a quick fun fact uh, that in the U.S. Marine Corps, uh, the name pile is a slang for someone who continuously messes up, needs training or being at the back of the line. So Kubrick did influence parts of the military that now everyone is using, you know, like in the Marine. So just what a fun fact. But the third thing I just want to say, I can't wait to uh, continue talking about Full Metal Jacket on Films Unchained because... David, this is uh, this film is also like w- one of our top three uh, Kubrick films, you know, with The Shining and A Clockwork Orange. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. So it's going to be a fantastic one talking about the final Stanley Kubrick film to break down that is in our top three. Yeah. So I can't wait for that. No, honestly. And guys, just to sort of break, like take away from the seriousness of all of this and the officialness, like it, doing these episodes is so fun. Like we do these just, you know, we don't do this like major profit or anything. We do this because we love movies. In the words of Tarantino, because we love movies. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, a little bit changed because we love talking about movies as much as he likes making movies. But we do enjoy these discussions. And I am very excited. And I I, I don't know why I'm saying this now, but I'm going to say it anyway. I'm going to give it away. Ace, if you let me, I'm going to give the take 97 and films unchained fandom if there is such a thing uh, to uh, a little sneak preview of something we are going to be working on at least two things we shall be working on which hopefully will come one definitely next year and one will come uh, the year after maybe the next a little bit sooner uh, would you like allow me to tell these guys all about the exclusive that we're going to be working on soon go for it thank you dude. right so as as ace pointed out we have done our top three now as of the part two of full metal jacket on films unchained we will have done our top three so two parts for full metal jacket two for clockwork orange and a solid one episode for the shining but we want to do more kubrick we probably will address some of the other films such as doctor strange lolita uh all those ones but there are two films or at least two topics we want to cover and here exclusively for you guys i'd like to give you a little sneak peek we will be doing we have agreed to discuss eyes wide shut because it needs to be talked about uh that will hopefully come in 2023 as of the recording of this episode Uh, and i'm also looking forward to a little idea i came up with recently with ace uh that we shall be discussing a we will rank the kubrick films so we will both have our individual rankings of not worse because we love the Kubrick, but you know, our least favorite to our favorite Kubrick and see how they differ. Uh, and we will also in that episode be making light discussion of the unmade projects and projects related to Stanley Kubrick. So that means, yes, we will discuss a bit of Napoleon and we will talk about what AI, the Kubrick version, full Kubrick version could have been like if he had directed it. So that's a little sneak preview for you guys. A lot to take in. But I thought I'd just share it with you now as the last part of our collaboration on Take 97's part. And I can't wait to get started. Ace, what do you have to say about our little revelation for the listeners today? Oh, I'm just looking forward for the future, David. That's all I have to say now. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Ace. Um, Quickly, give people your social media so people can follow you because you guys, you need to follow this guy just as much as you need to follow me and Take 97 because this guy is also, in my opinion, the draw oh man no that's your nickname what are you talking about man thank you no, um, go ahead go ahead <laughs> follow on instagram at films unchained pod uh, twitter at films unchained p and of course uh, you know uh, we also have a youtube uh, page where we upload some of our full episodes but also like some of our you know uh clips 
of our full episodes. So uh, Films Unchained podcast. But of course, you know, like if you if you listen to David, you, you know, you can automatically find me there because, you know, David and I, we have this magic that we create when it comes to talking about cinema. So that's how you find me. Exactly. And I can't wait, as well as Kubrick, you know, I feel like we need to do something really special sometime soon, something completely out of the blue that no one's going to expect. So, you know, we don't we don't even know what that is yet. So, you know, we will do that for you guys. But, you know, if anyone has suggestions for what films you would like us to talk about, I'm sure I'll make a poll of it. But please DM both of us, either of us, and we will see what we can do to bring, you know, slice of Canada, slice of the UK, slap bang together into, I don't want to call it a, a chur- into a, like channel cherry pie or whatever it is. A, a, in, I was going to say intergalactic cherry pie, but that's not really a thing. More like, um, you know, transatlantic cherry pie. That's what me and Ace are. We're an interesting collaboration of two voices who love to break down movies. That's a wrap on Take 97. The Full Metal Jacket Part one of the pod series with Films Unchained collaboration, Birth of a Killer episode for you guys today. That is the wrap on that episode with me, your host, David Ingram, and also Ace of the Films Unchained podcast. Thank you so much for listening, guys. And thank you, Ace, for joining me. But please tune in to part two on Films Unchained podcast, where movie analysis, breakdowns and film talks will also take place on both sides of the podverse. I'll see you guys later, and thank you for listening. Bye-bye.